Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 327th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you yet again by Aisha Suleiman, our patron. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we have Dennis Lahane on the show. He's a very famous writer. He writes books. He writes TV shows. He writes movies. He wrote the books that led to some movies you might have heard of. Mystic River. He wrote Gone Baby Gone. He wrote The Outsider. On Boardwalk Empire, he was a consultant. He was on three seasons of The Wire as a writer and... He is the showrunner of a new Apple TV Plus series called Blackbird, which is coming out July 8th. It stars Taron Egerton. Who kind of is a convict who goes undercover in an even darker, scarier prison to get a confession out of a killer before he is released. It's pretty juicy stuff. It's based on a true story. Dennis really breaks down why he was excited about it and why we should be excited about it. But we also kind of just dig deep into writing true crime, taking a true story and breaking it down into note cards to, in order to make a TV show out of it. We get pretty process oriented and dig in on specifically how Dennis likes to do it, which I think is especially interesting because, you know, he writes a lot of crime stories. You know, they're mysteries, right? They have clues, things have to unravel, there are red herrings. And so it's a very technical, very plotty sort of writing. But Dennis has a heartbeat, a current of emotionality and uh, personal stakes in all of his writing as well. So talking just a little bit about how you get into the nitty gritty of the twists and turns of one of these stories was super fun. And I think even if you're not familiar with his shows or his work or his movies, you'll get a lot out of it. We try to really keep the episode general because that's how we like it. But before we talk to Dennis... Matt, I've been dying to know what's been on your mind lately. Yeah, well, so we have been both messing with the new AI tool, Dolly Mini. For those who are unfamiliar, basically, it's a new free-to-use AI system that takes a word prompt, like a sentence, essentially, and generates imagery based off of the sentence that you write. It scans the internet, it compiles all of those images into you know a database, and then kind of sort of merges them together, teaches itself how to make images based off of that prompt. And so it gives you a matrix of nine tries, nine different versions. And it's super fun. And I think that Oren and I both had the thought of like, oh, wow, could this be something 
that's useful to filmmakers. And that's what we're here to talk about. Yeah, I actually saw this pretty cool video yesterday. I believe it was from a YouTuber named Karen Chang. Karen X Chang. I would maybe call her an Instagram or TikTok influencer. So you're familiar with her? Yeah, we've. I think we've endorsed her on the show before. She rose to popularity because she does really cool DIY camera tricks. She's the sort of person that will teach you how to do a cool video transition using a Swiffer and your iPhone. She does great stuff with like fake drones on like a 360 camera on like a boom pole. Okay, I'm going to check out her stuff. You got to check out her stuff. It's really good. She's kind of a new age version of like a Michelle Gondry type. Like it's it's fun tricks. It's tutorials. She's revealing things. Totally a worthwhile artist to explore and enjoy. She worked with Cosmopolitan to make an AI generated cover for their latest issue. And it's pretty good. Did you see her final? It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's like on newsstands. I don't know what she did to get such great results. But I would say that whatever cocktail of descriptors that she has used gets more photoreal depictions than I have found. So if you want to try out Dolly, I actually did not even know that regular humans like myself had access to this right now. I thought you had to be part of some program, but just Google Dal, D-A-L-L dash E, and you'll find it. It's like a joke between Wally and yeah. Dolly. Salvador Dolly. Yeah. And you can type in a phrase and it'll generate an image. And the images are quite amazing. It's really bad with human faces, but everything else it does well. And Matt and I were talking about pitches and treatments and decks. And like, could we use this to generate the images we need? Like, well, right now I'm working on, on a project where there's like a kid CEO that is driving a white toy Mercedes. I just wrote in kid CEO in conference room, driving a white toy Mercedes. It basically gave me a kid with a tie in the conference room, (laughs) driving a Mercedes. It's changing things. And I don't know how I feel about it. Of course, I think it's awesome and incredible, but Even knowing that tools like this exist sometimes Mm -hmm. scares me a little bit because not because I'm worried about like the AI robots taking over the world, but it's because I feel like there's this rat race of us needing to be up to date on the tools to make awesome Mm -hmm. presentations and awesome visuals. And like, obviously, you know, storytelling is like the heart of what we do, but a lot of times we get the jobs by selling it with the visuals and Mm -hmm knowing that some people have access to like, like it can imagine an AI where you feed a script into it and it gives you like storyboard frames of like the most important scenes in the, in the movie or the show. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, uh, initially when we talked about doing this segment, I thought, Oh, wouldn't it be fun if we both showed each other some examples of imagery that we perhaps needed to Photoshop for a presentation or something. And, and show each other what the results would be from Dolly's AI. Um, and the answer is it's got kind of weird and kind of fun and pretty unusable, even, even though it's incredible and neat. But I think the thing that I'm realizing when we're talking about this that is maybe practical in the immediate now is inspiration, right? So like... A computer is going to just do its very hardest to interpret the strange thing that you're trying to Photoshop together. But I think if you create a little bit of a feedback loop where you see what you, you give it a prompt, you see what it's, it, it spits back out to you and let that inspire you, 
and then go Photoshop something, I think is is perhaps a better use in the short term. I don't know how many images I'm going to be able to throw into a a deck without it being pretty weird. Yeah, pretty overt. Check it out. Dolly, I'm really curious to know how you all feel about it. And also if you've found any uses for like AI in your work as a filmmaker. To me, the ultimate hope of AI is that it actually does work for you that you no longer Mm -hmm. have to do. I think right now we're still in the like, we can be inspired by it to write interesting stories or to make create weird imagery in a perfect world. It will like create a shot list for you and then you edit it. So yeah, anyhow, do you think, do you think you'll use this for anything? I mean, it seems so obvious to pitch a music video. It's like all Dolly, right? But I'm yeah, sure it's I, I been think done a million I, times. I think like we'll see some cool Dolly animations. I think, you know, with some zhuzhing, you could definitely do a cool horror short. The mediums where things tend to be more experimental and conceptual, we'll see immediate uses, right? In the same way that we saw you know, filmmakers who were especially into technology, embracing digital early, whether that's George Lucas or Danny Boyle, you know, uh, kind of on both ends of the spectrum of like, oh, I just, I want to democratize filmmaking or I want to be on the bleeding edge of creating visuals that are unique. And I think for journeyman filmmakers, craftspeople, you know, it'll probably take a while before we see AI used in any sort of mainstream way. But until then, you know, I'm I'm happy to do it the old fashioned way. Please email us. Let us know your thoughts. Just shoot a pod at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested in helping support the podcast, you should check out patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. It's a place where you can give a dollar a month, $3 a month, $5, $10, $20 a month. If you give $20, then you will get a just shoot it the podcast hat coolest hat anywhere this side of silver lake california but again we appreciate it it really helps motivate us to keep going we use the money to pay for the various web services and dropbox accounts and things and also for our editor noah bayshore you should check him out at noah bayshore on instagram noah bayshore is very interested in purchasing my imac which is funny because i worked on some movies that he really likes and he's like there's something kind of like nostalgic about your specific computer But also, you know, a Mac Mini is a really good deal, too. So we'll see what he ends up doing. Thanks to Noah. Check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash just shoot a pod. And now let's get on with the show. We'll hop in with our conversation with Dennis Lehane right after a word from our sponsors. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Dennis Lehane, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Congrats on the show on Blackbird. Thank you. It's an Apple TV show. And it's when does it come out? July 8th? July 8th. Apple TV Plus. That's awesome. And is this the first show that you're a showrunner yeah, on? Yeah, it's the first. I've run the writer pre-production side of shows before, but I've never run a show soup to nuts. How did it go? I thought it was spectacular. I loved it. <laughs> I really loved it. And it was did not go well in a lot of ways. But <laughs> How so? Hold on. We got to pump the brakes. We were shooting in Southern Louisiana and it Uh was summer and it was COVID. And we had just about every day. I mean, I I could check production notes, but I would feel like almost every day we had, we had to shut down for lightning delays. I don't know. I felt like as crazed as it was, and it was, you know, it was nuts. I'd never been happier in my life. I loved it. So your background is obviously as a novelist, right? You started being by yourself writing and then... You wrote on TV and now you're interacting with like 8 million people. Kind of had like an incremental social writing exposure. exposure. Yeah. You started alone in a, you know, in a shack or something. Right. And then you're in a writer's room and then all of a sudden you're the head of a small corporation of craftspeople. And I think that could be part of it because when something goes wrong in a novel, which it always does, particularly in the, usually in the middle, you're alone. There's no help coming. You're in the valley of darkness, you know, and you just got to cross it. To have everything go south on a film suit, you can call your partners. You can, you know, you, you can all go have a drink afterwards and talk behind somebody's back, whatever you need to do. It feels great. One of the very first things someone told me when I made like one of my first short films in L.A. was there was a guy, he went to USC film school. He's like, don't worry, just save it in the score. I was like, save what? it in the Someone save else can save the score. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Someone else can save this scene oh, for that's me. that's hilarious. That's not yeah. me. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about Blackbird? Obviously, you've done a lot of crime thriller shows over in your career. What was it about Blackbird that interested you and that got you excited about it? Initially, nothing. I didn't want to do it. And uh, I didn't. I, I was like, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd been involved in so many dark projects uh, leading up to Blackbird that... Uh, when Carrie Antholis, this project started at HBO. So when Carrie Antholis brought it to me at HBO, he said, just read it, just read it, just read it. So I read it. Were there all the scripts or just oh, no, like a I wrote, the, I wrote the scripts. It was the book. Yeah, it's a book called In With the Devil by Jimmy Keene and uh, Hilo Lovin is the name of the co-author. I read the book, uh, a lot of it driving. 
I reached a point, there was a simultaneous point where I, A, started to think I might have a take on it that was different and make it worth my while. And then mm-hmm. B, came to a point in the book where Larry Hall said something. Larry Hall is the, ser- the potential serial killer. He said something in the book that was so disturbing that I pulled my car over to the side of the road and like had to take a minute. And that's when I, and then Paul Walter Hauser reading that exact dialogue in the first table read we ever did broke down. It was something about driving toward that moment, which comes at the end. So I can't tell you what moment it was. I started to think about the fact that all people objectify, everybody in the world objectifies. I don't care who you are, but only men seem to weaponize it. And I started to think, where do men fall on the spectrum? Like, let's say that a serial killer is Z, right? Are you an A? Probably not. You know what I mean? So then it's like, are you a B or are you a C? And that became my journey for Jimmy is, is where are you on the spectrum? Because he's told very early, you will not get to this guy unless you establish common ground. And so where do you intersect with a, with a potential serial killer? So that drew me in. And then I told them I'd do it. And then I wrote all of the scripts reasonably fast. And then right at that moment, HBO said, you know, this is fantastic. We're not interested. You wrote six episodes? I wrote five. I wrote five. Do you kind of arbitrarily split it up into five? You, you card it. You, you know, I sat in a room and I, I had a, two guys with me, the guys who wrote the third episode, and we carded the show. And of course, what comes out of the carding usually doesn't work, to be honest with you. Why not? Nobody knows. There's something about writer's rooms that what looks fantastic up on the board when you start writing in practice, all of a sudden you're like, Mm -hmm. why did I think this was good? You know, Mm -hmm. this is, this is crap. (laughs) I'm going through it right now. We boarded our next show and we carded the pilot and it was terrific. And I started to write it and it was crap. So you had a take on it. So when you were carding it with these two guys in, in the office, like is carding it, basically you're taking the story and you're dividing it into scenes. Or is your take already, is your take kind of related to the point of view of, of how you're telling the story? Or, yeah, yeah. Like how, yeah how, you did, go, how does well, the you go in work? and you say, all right, you say to your writers, you know, everybody reads the book and then you say, this is my take on the story. This is the way I want to tell this story. You know, you pull out the major themes, which you'll see in the show. You know, it's like, it's the relationship between Jimmy and his father, hugely mm-hmm. important. It's the only reason Jimmy took the deal. Um, the question of the male gaze, what that means, you know, we're, we're going to look at that. I wanted to really beef up a female character in this, in the show. Uh, and there wasn't really, there was a bit of one in the book, but not, not to where I went. And then there was a final trunk, which is the part that Greg Kinnear plays in the show, which is this investigation that happened five years before the action that you're about to see. And, and so we were going to be cross-cutting back and forth. And we knew that. And then you try and say, all right, now, how do we make this work? How do we make this stick? You, you, I like to know my very beginning and I like to know my very end. And then I'll mm-hmm. mess with everything else. So we knew what the target was, you know, and we had the book. So that helped. And then you start and it's a lot of starts and stops and a lot of questions. I was adamant that I didn't want to spend too much time in the prison. That's what almost kept me away from the show in the first place. I don't like prisons. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, it's just, I'm the last person who ever saw Shawshank. Yeah, I just don't like prisons. Can I just make a small comment that I think is so fascinating for listeners at home, Dennis? When you said there were a lot of starts and stops, you had like a devilish grin on your face, like there was a there was delight in the process. I love the process. I love the process. My father worked 
for Sears and Roebuck for 37 years. I'm pretty sure the bloom came off the rose of that job about two weeks in. And yet he did it to put food on the table. I get, I get paid to do what is sometimes a difficult job, but it's a job that I love. So why wouldn't I have fun? And see, even when it's a disaster, it beats the hell out of working at Sears. Simple as that. So you have the story and then do you divide it into like five acts in your mind before you start carding it? No, no. You just start, you start throwing up cards. It gets really messy. And then, and then after a while you go, oh, wait, I think I see an episode here. The act of carding, it sounds like, is almost thinking out loud. It's yeah. not like you have things premeditated and then you're Mm-mm. just kind of executing. No, nope. It's like the reason it's cards is so that you can mix and match things. You can move things around. Like, yep. is there color coding? Are there different boards? Tell us a little bit about the practicality of it. Yeah. The practicality is it's all, it's, you'll have like a Jimmy would be, Jimmy Beats would be green. Uh, mm-hmm. Miller beats would be yellow. And that's another way you can see things after a while too. Like mm-hmm. if you all of a sudden just go, there, there's like nine red cards and the, and the red card is, is to a minor storyline, like an E storyline. Mm-hmm. We're going top heavy on an E storyline. Yeah. No. Yeah. So you, you pull that out. The other great thing was that with the, in this story was that they came in the writers of the book, including Jimmy Keene, who's, you know, the star of the show simultaneously or the lead character, uh, Jimmy, and Hillel came in with kind of a teaser. And the teaser was that when Gary Miller, the guy who ultimately caught Larry Hall back in 1993, he sat across from him and he was questioning him with three police officers around him who were hostile to the even idea that this guy could be a killer. And somebody made a, a snarky remark about Larry's dreams. And Miller said, what's with your dreams? And Larry Hall said, well, in my dreams, I kill women but they're just dreams. And that was the end of the chapter. And I said, that's the end of our first episode. I knew I was driving there the whole time, you know, yeah. because it was so batshit. Right. And that's in the trailer yeah. too. So it kind of sets up the it show. Set, yeah. It sets up the, the whole first episode. You finally meet, I keep Larry off screen the whole first episode. Then you come in and you meet him the way Miller met him. And then you're watching these cops sit around and just go, he didn't do it. He didn't, he just likes mm-hmm. telling stories. And then he says, you know, in my dreams, sometimes I, I kill women. And Miller's, Miller was like, oh, please tell me more, you know? And that became the confession. And when you have like these scenes that you're so excited about, you have that line, you have the, obviously that line of dialogue that made you pull the car over. Do you put those up kind of on the board pretty early on and start working backwards to, to set up those moments so that they, they land with like weight? No, I don't think so. No. No, I don't, I don't go that far. I just sort of, I, I like to just say, do I have a solid structure? Good. I can work within this. And then you know that usually if you've done this enough, you are aware that no matter what you have on the board, only 60% of it's going to be usable. You start getting into the material and then you start going, oh, start to follow things, trails organically. And that's when you come up with your best stuff. So when your fingers are on the keyboard, you've, you've boarded things out. Do you ever go back? Do you ever think like, oh man, I've I've lost the path here. Like I just need a little more clarity or mm-hmm. or Yeah, you'll you'll go back in the show that I'm writing now. And we were in the room and we said we really need to find this weird sex act. We, we just want to show something that's just bizarre. I've been out of the dating world forever, so I don't know. So I said, you know, what what's out there? One of the people in the room found, because we're dealing with pyromania, um, found something called streaking. You ever heard of it? 
heard of people running naked in a foot. That's a football. actually a line in the script. Uh, that's actually becomes a line in the script. You know what streaking is? And she says, yeah, when somebody takes off their clothes and runs naked. No, streaking is when somebody takes something that's mildly a flammable fluid and they put it on your skin and then uh-huh. they light it. And it literally causes a fire, but the fire doesn't burn through your skin. It doesn't get to your skin. If you blow it up quick enough, there's no burning. Uh So it's a Uh game. It's a very risky game that people play. And like a vodka, like it reminds me of like the shots in a bar, you know, like flaming. Same concept. I went to write the scene and I knew, I knew I had, I was going to be writing a crazy sex scene, but I had totally forgotten what it was called. And I totally forgot what was really happening in the scene. Like I was like, didn't we have some weird thing with fire and sex and, and so then I had to reach out to somebody who had taken the notes that day and say, what was that scene? And then she sent it to me. If I can forget that, you can forget anything. <laughs> yeah, 15-minute conversation. People are Googling things. Um, that's great. I love that. Okay, so you wrote the five episodes and then HBO is like, no thanks. And do you, by, by the way, before you write, do you have to pitch your take on it? to them or do you just say okay i'll go write something yeah i i had even though i was, like, I was under con how does that work minute, let me think was i under contract on this project i can't exactly remember i don't think i was on contract yet um but yeah i had to pitch it to len amato who was running uh hbo nonfiction at that point and mm-hmm. he was psyched everybody was psyched um i went off i wrote the pilot everybody loved the pilot so then i continued writing and and do do they pay you to write the pilot or do you own the no, pilot? They, they, like who, who oh, owns that? They pay you to write the pilot. And, and they, they own, own it. it. Like they could in theory have someone else rewrite no it problem. if they wanted. No problem. It happens all the time. Uh, so then we were all excited. We thought, okay, we got this. This is great. We turned it in and they literally said, oh, this is terrific, but we just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And they were complete class acts about it. And they, they let us, Richard Plepler, who used to run HBO, was now an independent. They let us take it to Richard, who greenlit it 10 years earlier, I think. Um, and Richard set it up at Apple. Yeah, TV that's great. Plus. I feel like that version of the story is happening maybe a little bit more frequently. But back in the day, you'd just be kind of out of luck, right? Like... If they own it, I feel like people used to be a little bit more competitive about keeping their IP close to the vest. There was, you know, I've, I've, I've had moments where I've had projects where they have said, uh, usually everybody has been really gentlemanly, I want to say. Um, they, what, they, what they'll say is you can take it everywhere, but, and they might mention two places that they consider mm-hmm. their most direct competition. Sure. Sure. And then you go, okay. Well, Which would be the probably the two best places to take it, though. To be <laughs> well, there's that. Fair, yeah, right? there is that. There is that. But. Yeah. They're like, you cannot take this to Quibi. <laughs> That's Everything right. else is fine. What's your first step when you are trying to adapt a story into a show? Do you think of the drama? Do you think of the beats? Do you think of the casting? And obviously, you mentioned you don't like prisons. I imagine part of that is because you don't want everything to look the same visually yeah. in a show. Like, how do you take a story, especially a true crime story, which maybe sometimes doesn't fall in like perfect setups and payoffs and mold it into something that's going to be dramatic and satisfying until the, the very final episode? Well, I mean, that's the job, you know, 
I mean, that's the job. You, 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 and it's new every time, you know, every single time you approach something, you're like, oh, there's a million ways I can F this up. Blackbird, I thought I had a really clear hero's journey story. It was really clean in that, in that way. It was, it was I, I'm dead serious. The story was as old as Gilgamesh. It was man goes off to protect society, goes off far away into a dark cave, comes back out, has saved society, but is inalterably transformed. So then where were the wrinkles in this one then? Like if you've got that as a spine, is it episode to episode or like? There was a whole script written with just pressure that was coming on him from other parts of the prison. And we wrote it. Then I looked at it and I said, there's not a single thing in this that works. Not one. Like, <laughs> I don't want to watch this show. That's a big thing. Like as writers, you know, me and uh, my fellow buddy writers would always say, you know, if you run into trouble on a book, it's, are you writing the book you want to read? That's the, that, that has to be the law, you know, because if you don't want to read it, who's going to want to read it? So I think, are you writing the show that you want to see? And, and if I go, I don't want to watch, it's exactly what happened with the show I'm working on right now. I started to write the pilot and I went, I wouldn't watch this. You know, I was about 20 pages in. I was like, there's nothing here I would watch. I would be up and out. So now I got to go back and redo the entire thing. Fine. That's the job. I'm curious, though, what about it didn't pass the the smell test for you? Is it like, oh, it's aimless. It doesn't have enough stakes. I don't like this character. All of that. It was everything. It was the whole box. Yeah. Yeah. And then you go back in and I'll give you another great example of something. We talked about this a lot after we made the show. The one thing that was virtually left untouched was the pilot. From the moment it came out, I've never had this happen in my life. You know, it stayed in an A draft. Mm. It was never touched. Yeah, I mean, there was a tweak or two here, tweak or two there. That was it. We went, everybody was so excited. We shot it. We get into editing and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'm like staring at it and staring at it and staring at it. And finally, I said, we need to completely restructure the entire first 15 minutes of the show. And we did. And then it worked. With existing ingredients? Yeah, existing ingredients. It was, just prior, sure. it was just the chronology of how we set up the scenes. And it's like, you're staring at that for two years. Two years, and nobody's got a problem with it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, you're in an editing bay, and you're going, this sucks. Like, this doesn't work. And does it hit you... Like personally, or are you showing it to people and seeing like that people aren't reacting no, or they're no, no. It's, it's, not tracking? No, it's, it's hitting me personally. Like, uh, and then, and then if you say, do you think this works? <laughs> and everybody's been waiting to tell you, they'll be like, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. You know, obviously you've written a ton, you've produced now you're a consultant on Boardwalk Empire and you, you know, from The Wire and Shutter Island and all these other things where you're really one of the originators of the stories that are being told, but maybe not necessarily choosing lenses and, yeah. you know, mm. camera movement and all that stuff. Tell us about like how much of the look of Blackbird like was in your mind before you hired directors and everyone. Like how does the look and feel of Blackbird come out, out of you? I was really clear with the production designer and with the DP and uh, the directors that, that I had a strong visual palette for what I wanted to see. And obviously, I don't want to do their jobs. I, you know, my DP will, will tell you I stayed pretty much out of her way. The palette that I wanted and the 
the production design knew this right from the get-go, and that sets a lot of tone, is mm-hmm. I wanted the scenes of what I call past the pastoral scenes, the scenes of innocence, the scenes of, I wanted them to have look like kind of we as shorthand we use Days of Heaven, Terrence Malick, Magic Hour vibe. And I wanted Jimmy's life to be Michael Mann. I wanted it to be very sleek. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be very cold. So that the juxtaposition of the two worlds is that they can't really ultimately come together. And then into this pastoral world comes the monster. And that's you know, mm-hmm. the killer. And then the other thing was, I said, we're, ne- we're going to show none of the, none of the actual murders are going to be shown. I loathe mm-hmm. that. Wait, what do you mean? You loathe seeing? I loathe, the, I loathe the, the sort of, I, I just, I don't like this, mm-hmm. uh, the slasher aesthetic. I don't like uh, torture porn. I don't like any of it. I don't need to see mm-hmm. one more time in my life, the shot of the butcher knife going into somebody's body. You know, it's just, it's right. Didn't that, uh, that one guy did that. Hitchcock. Oh no, you don't. You don't actually see it going to his body, into her body. <laughs> yeah, you misremembered. Oh yeah. Um, um, yeah. And look at that. I mean, I think one of the most terrifying scenes in film history is is Martin Balsam at the top of those stairs. You know, and sure. just how fast she comes out. You know, you're like, what? Do you feel like you know, as a person who's written in this crime world, the world has many, many grisly you know, acts of violence over, over the course of your career. Do you feel like that attitude has evolved in any way? Or do you feel like it was kind of, you were already always sort of steadfast and like, let it happen off screen. I was just never a gore guy. I was always like, I've written some of the most disturbing, you know, certainly in the nineties, I wrote some of the most disturbing stuff out there, but it was not, it was never about seeing graphic detail of, you know, it was specifically Mm -hmm. chosen disturbing as hell details but they were not meant to be like oh look, let's go have a intimate mm-hmm. view of a slaughter it's the human consequences of those actions it's the moment in seven when you see the polaroid of of the mm-hmm. weapon the dildo weapon that's a <laughs> sure. bazillion yeah, times yeah. more terrifying than actually seeing what could have been done you know it was the director of the pilot michael roscom yeah mikhail roscom yeah roscom so how I, I see he directed The Drop, yes. another film yes. that you wrote. How did you decide on him to do the pilot? And like, how important is that decision of the director that will do the pilot? Oh, I, think of your show? I think it's really important because it sets tone for sure. It sets the look of the show. It gives it the imprint that everybody follows from that point on. I mean, if you look at Fincher with Mindhunter and you look at Jason Bateman with Ozark, I mean, you know, that, that, those are templates that then are followed. So yeah, so Mikhail knew myself and... Uh, Natalie, who was the DP, we had dozens of discussions about what the show was going to look like. What was the guiding aesthetic of it? And Natalie wanted to, Natalie was very involved and she said, you know, she wanted it to have a very elegant and classical look to it, that there wasn't going to be a lot of moving cameras. There wasn't going to be handheld. There wasn't going to, mm-hmm. I had to fight for the one handheld shot in the show. It does have a real timeless kind of classic feel like it kind of feels, yeah. you know, Cine- very cinematic and like lived that's in, what that's you know? what she was really 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 wanted so and there was a lot of wonderful uh you know creative battling going on uh to to nail it down but i think that's the whole point you know you want to have those battles so do you interview multiple directors or was it kind of because he he hadn't done a lot of pilots no before, he hadn't right? and we um yeah. we it was it was by that point it had come down to it was uh the brain trust at that point was myself, Gary, Bradley Thomas, 
Alexander Milshin, uh, and uh, Taryn. Uh, Taryn was that, by that point mm-hmm. on board as our star, and and he wanted he mm-hmm. wanted input on the director, and we gave it to him. So ultimately, we looked no, at oh, uh, trying to think how many we looked at, and then we were shot down by a couple, and then we didn't want a couple of others, and then and then ultimately we just said, well, what about Roscoe? You know, he did such a great job on the drop, did such a great job on Bullhead. Let's see if he's free. And and then we all signed off, and then we got him. And when you say you were shot down by some and didn't want others, does that mean you met with them, talked about the show with them, and kind of got their take on it? Like, were people pitching themselves uh, to you? People, there was a couple of people who pitched themselves who we just didn't feel were right. And then there were a couple of people who took the scripts and just said, you know, it's great, but it's not for me. You know, it was never a case of, oh, I don't like this. It was more like, again, probably a version of what I, I went through when it was first pitched to me. Do I really want to go to Southern Louisiana and live in a decrepit prison for four months of shooting? <laughs> was there anything Mikhail said that was like, you get it? He's like, I'm pretty much just fishing for things to tell showrunners to get a, to get a directing job, just in case it wasn't clear. <laughs> you know, a, a lot of it for me is, you know, A, I'd have to see your work. And then B, it would be, who do, who do you emulate? How do you work? Mm-hmm. How do you work is a big one. It's tough for film directors, certainly, to come into a TV show and realize that the guy who calls the shots is the showrunner. You know, and I'll give you as much birth as I can give you. But if I have to say, no, you need to shoot this my way, then you got to shoot it my way. But the thing that I feel is paramount, and it's just absolutely paramount, is I don't micromanage. I don't believe in it. I hire people because you're an expert in your mm-hmm. field. Why would I micromanage you? Why would I breathe down your neck? Why would I do anything? Unless that you may bring me something I don't like. And I'll be like, I don't like it. And I'll be very firm. I'm not using it. We're not doing that. But otherwise, no, it's not my job to micromanage. I know some directors think it is. Good for them. You did say that you had to fight for one shot, the one handheld shot in the show. Is that something that like... Even while you were writing, you're like, this, this needs to have that feeling. No, it happened. It happened the day of the shoot. And I just turned to Natalie and I said, you gotta, I really want some handheld here. I want you to just track this character through this mm-hmm. the character walking. And I said, I want you to just come up on her and go handheld and come around her. And she was like, no, this is not the language of the show. Like we have a... Twelve thousand dollar a day steady cam well, operator well, she, sitting right here said, it's, playing Candy Crush. It's not yeah. the language of the show, and I said, "Well, it is tonight." Yeah, you sure. know, like we're <laughs> using it, and and it was we were super lucky because we had a ton of blown footage on that. The handheld saved us. By the time you were rolling, you have a real brain trust. Mm-hmm. You, you named a lot of different people who so were serious creative stakeholders. Outside of the the DP relationship, were there other instances where? you know, you had to really put your foot down or, or that someone else maybe really fought for something and convinced oh, you. Oh, sure. There were, you know, oh my God, we, we, the fighting was pretty much nonstop. <laughs> like, you know, you're constantly battling stuff out, you know? Um, Mikhail had really um, strong ideas about a couple of different scenes that ended up, you know, affecting the budget, affecting, affecting the schedule, affecting everything. And so you got to find a middle ground. Mm-hmm. Like you got to say, look, I want my director happy and I want my director to, to do his best work. If he's, he's passionate, he's going to do his best work. At the same time, it's like, dude, we don't have that money. Like, you know, so you got to kind of, we got to mm-hmm. find a balance. And a lot of times, you know, the, the balance is where the good stuff comes from. Uh, McKay, McKay sure. shot a yeah. shot. It broke all of our hearts. He had a shot in that show that we said, there's the trailer. 
there, there it is. Mm-hmm. That's the, that is, that shot is the shot. And we got into editing. Sure. The crew's high-fiving at the yeah. end. That's the kiss and of we, death. And yeah. we got into editing <laughs> and we were like, cut it. Yeah. <laughs> and we cut it. Yeah. Taryn, yeah. Uh, another one was one of my favorite scenes. Taryn and Sepeda um, near the end of the show. It was one of my favorite scenes when I wrote it. It was one of our favorite scenes when we filmed it. We got into editing. We loved it on its own. Then we looked at the whole episode and we were like, it's dragging the episode into a wastebasket. Like it's just dragging us down. And we, and we cut it. I know we're running out of time, but I really wanted to ask you, but you've worked obviously with Ben Affleck. You've done a couple movies. You worked with Clint Eastwood. I'm curious if you learned anything like from a filmmaking production directing standpoint from those guys that, or any directors you worked with that you brought back to your shows now that you're the showrunner, now mm-hmm. that you're... Yeah, what are the things you cherry-picked? Yeah. I don't see how tension helps anybody. I've never seen it contribute well mm-hmm. to a set. I don't see mm-hmm. how being a dick helps anybody. And that's something that both Ben and Clint, they ran their sets that way. They were polite. Clint famously never says action or cut. He says, when you're ready, or he'll say, okay. And then he says, instead of cut, he says, thank you. And you go, man, that those little things mean a ton. Nice. And then everybody nice. yeah. who's on your set knows that you have their back. They tend to have yours. Mm-hmm. So when you had, when we had personnel problems. We had some issues on set. It wasn't perfect by any means, you know? Um, but any time that I thought, oh, that's way out of line, I, I went in. Nobody else. Mm-hmm. It has to be the person at the top. And I would take somebody aside and say, you can't do this, man. You can't, you can't be talking to people this way. You cannot do it. And if you do, if I hear you do it again, you're done, you know? Got to show respect. That goes, that goes a long way. It just goes a very long way, I feel. I remember being with Clint for the final shot of Mystic River, sitting on a floor with him. You know, his second take, and he just said, well, thank you, everyone. You know, that's a, that's a wrap. That movie, that dark, dark movie was an absolutely fun movie to film because that's... And everybody at Malpaso knows the rules. Everybody at El Paso knows there's no shouting. There's no running. There's no bullhorns. You know, you just keep a nice, cool set. You were talking about the very final shot of the film. Matt and I work on a lot of very short form things. Like uh, we do a lot of commercials, so a lot of one and two day shoots. Does he manage to get that calmness and sereneness even on day one of shooting? Clint, yeah. yeah. He's just chill, man. He's just, he's just, I mean, <laughs> I, I watched him shoot this parade sequence that I'm actually in. And uh, at the end of Mystic River, the shot that ends the movie. And uh, he's going up and down. There's hundreds of extras, you know, it's, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's literally this huge shoot. and. At one point, I see Clint just kind of strolling through the whole thing. And, and the look on his face is, huh, what am I going to have for lunch? Does he ever have that look of like, huh, this is pretty cool. I have a pretty cool job. He does. He's got this real light, light this kind of light in his eyes that goes off when he's, you know, that comes on, I, I mean, when he's, when he's doing film. And it's great to watch. So Taryn, is, he's a producer on this project. He's obviously mm-hmm. the star. We were curious like a little bit about how important he was in order to get the, the show mm-hmm. made or like how important was it for you to find someone like him before? Did you need star power to get a green light? My slightly less serious addendum to that question is like, are we ever allowed to cast American actors to play Americans <laughs> in America? I, I'm, I'm worried those days are coming. 
You know what I mean? Like once we run out of, <laughs> you know, because I was just thinking the other day, you can never, you can never make Scarface today, not with Al Pacino. You know, like sure, no way. Right, Robert yeah. Loggia, yeah, Robert Loggia playing a cute no way, yeah, yeah. no. Um, so yeah. Yeah. I feel like uh, with Taryn, I'm sorry, it just goes back to you know the the Brits, man. You gotta love working with the Brits, <laughs> you know. There's nothing fun. <laughs> Tell us why though. You just get so much range, and you get a lot less BS. You know, they don't like mm-hmm. running around, going out and shooting dogs at night so they can, you know, authentically play a psycho like somebody was rumored to have done. Right? They're they're you know just like they're, they're just acting. They were trained. They were classically trained. You think it's the training? I do. I mean, I, yeah. obviously, you have some like over, off the charts magnetism and talent when you got somebody like a, a Taron, but. Yeah, we we got him extremely early. That was Bradley, um, uh, one of my producing partners. Bradley went and got the scripts to Taron. And Taron flipped and said he really wanted to do it. And and we told Apple and Apple was like, it's go. you get him, it's a go. You know. So we got him. Once we had Taron, then it, then we got Paul and Taron was exceptionally happy about that decision. Can we talk about that a sure. little bit actually yeah. because I think it's really fascinating casting, specifically Paul, because like he steals the show in Itania, right? But he's like got like a real comedic edge to that performance in mm-hmm. particular, right? Like there's something like funny yeah. about it. And I don't get the sense that he brought those comedic talents to he this did. show. He did. He did. Oh, interesting. Just look, I'll give you I'll give you a perfect example. Uh watch watch how he eats a piece of bread. I'm serious. <laughs> It's it was brilliant as a masterstroke. We would watch him do stuff and we'd just be like, God, like some of the things he would his comedic physicality came into play a lot. Some of the things that he would do with his body were were like, oh, only a total psychopath would do. That. <laughs> you know what I mean? It kind of goes back around. Yeah, it, it's like it, it's not funny anymore. It's just like truly it's disturbing. Truly disturbing. And then he um he had a couple of improv lines. And at one point, I was like, I said, Paul, dude, I, I said it like this. I was like, Paul, do me a favor. Give me at least one take where you say the line like I wrote it, you know? And, and, <laughs> and then he came over, and my daughter was on set that day, and he came, he came over uh, like, like a few minutes later while we were setting up another scene. And he walked over to my 12-year-old daughter, and he was like, your dad is very angry with me. He's, I might get fired. And then he walked away. My daughter's like, are you going to fire Paul? I like Paul. And I'm like, I'm not going to fire anybody. Wait, give us some insight into how A-list Hollywood works. Do you, uh, you know, Paul played Richard Jewell in Clint Eastwood's movie. Do you, do you call up Clinton or text him and go like, what do you think of Paul? Is he he cool to work with? I'm not that A-list. The last time I talked to Clint was when he was considering doing, uh, he was, he was considering directing the drop a long, long time ago. And, uh, that was the oh. last time I ever talked to Clint. I'm not the type of guy who just picks up the phone and has these folks on. Maybe I will someday with Paul. We just went, Paul, we just went on the work. We just, we went totally on the work. We didn't ask anybody yeah. about him. We, we had heard, um, you know, we, we knew that he was, a you know, the people worked with him repeatedly. So that's always a good sign. Um, but beyond that, no. Right. And then Taryn was such a professional and so committed and such a gentleman, you know, he's the number one on the call sheet that basically set the tone for everybody below. Him. Right. Everyone was singing. It wasn't come by, Elton it John wasn't come by, but it was, yeah, no, no. At one point we asked him to sing an Elton John song. He was like, no, mate, 
It just, <laughs> like, that's, 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 there was nothing funny about his response. He was like, no, mate. Um, but yeah. imagine at rap drinks though, if Taryn just like busted out rocket man, it would have killed. It would have totally killed. He's got that up and, his sleeve. Right? And what you call it was trying to get, uh, Carrie was trying to get him to do it. He just wouldn't do it. But we have a hilarious, um, him and Paul got locked in a corridor at one point in the prison. And, uh, they got, they got stuck 12, it was 12 minutes and we have a great video of the two of them just walking up and down the prison hallway, singing stand by me. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. Oh uh, man. Wow. Um, that's, I, I feel like it's cool that he cared about the directors and I feel like a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. are directors, newer filmmakers. They're trying to attach stars to make their indie films. And like, I think sometimes, including me, like a lot of new directors don't understand how much the actors they are trying to cast care about how they'll be portrayed on film. How important it is for the actors to trust the filmmakers. How important they are as collaborators beyond just their role, right? Like there's a reason that so many actors end up with EP credits. And sometimes that's from the get go and sometimes it evolves. But like, yeah, I think that's a, a lesson that I think younger filmmakers could learn and that I think it just carries through all the way into, you know, great success. You know, there's the old David Mamet line, film is a collaborative business, now bend over. But, um, but I feel <laughs> like it, it truly, if, if it's done right, it truly is a collaborative business. And that's why I feel like the dictators and the people who don't respect that idea of the process that it's all of us it's not just one vision it's not just one mm-hmm. you know th- those are the people i just don't want to work with i don't have time i don't yeah. care and now i'm at the point where i don't have to i would rather work with a, a an actor who's who's like 95 percent talent wise and a joy to work with and work with somebody who's at 100 percent and is an a-hole life's too short also there are plenty of 100 percenters out there who aren't a-holes yeah they're all british they're all in Britain. They're all in Britain. They're, 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 fish, no. uh, they're fish yeah. in the sea. It's just a, you know. Well, Dennis, this was awesome. It's so fun, man. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Usually we ask you if, you know, we can follow you on social media or anything. But I guess, is there any, any other upcoming projects besides Blackburn that we should keep an eye out for? No, I have a novel, um, a novel that might be my final novel, but it's also my best novel coming out a year from now uh, in the spring. It's called Small Mercies. I can't believe you find time to also write novels. Is it relaxing for you? Like, do you enjoy it and your time off? It, it allowed me to escape, I think, in some ways, mentally at the end of the day on the shoot. Wait, you, hold on. You're telling me you wrote a novel at the end of I wrote a novel while we, every shoot day? While we were shooting the show, yeah. I, wow. I wish someone could take my blood pressure right now. That is like my, my I don't know. I don't know. Spiked. I don't know what the heck was going on. I just would, I would come back. We were staying in this beautiful mansion in New Orleans and I would come back at night and I would just sit with a notebook and I would write and it just helped. It was relaxing. Well, Dennis, this is so great. Thank you so my much. Pleasure. Blackbird, July 8th. That's right. Apple TV plus. Thanks to Dennis Lehane for coming to do our podcast. We had a limited time with him. So Matt and I are going to do the endorsements on our own. If you're cool with that, Matt, are you cool with joining me for a quick endorsement? I guess so. Unpaid endorsements. So my unpaid endorsement is a YouTuber with the last name of Nystat, but not the one you're thinking of. Not Casey, his brother, Van Nystat, also has a YouTube channel. And I've enjoyed his videos very much. Casey Nystat, I think... Most people probably know if they're listening to the show is a 
pretty famous vlogger who has a very distinct style of like scenic drone shots and like chill music. And he lives this very cool life in New York. And they, they, I guess they moved to L.A. a while ago, but like kind of like an aspirational, artistic, bohemian lifestyle where he's constantly posting videos about how great his life is and, and all of this stuff. His brother Van, I think, has a similar, though distinctly more California vibe. However, he is a disciple and and a, a graduate, maybe you might call him, of Mike Sachs, Mike Sachs Workshop. So Mike Sachs is a pretty famous gallery artist who does these kind of crazy installations. And he has like, a, at least back in the day, like a squad of cool 20-something artist types who all work for him in his workshop. And it's all pretty cool stuff. But as a result, he's got kind of a very clear aesthetic. And he became kind of the in-house filmmaker for Mike Sachs and started developing his style. And I think kind of probably influenced Casey pretty significantly and vice versa. Anyway, now he's in his Mm. 50s. He's like kind of a Topanga Canyon artist who does these sort of personal video blogs and also has a young son who's about three years old. And I think that this show has sort of evolved into, at least in part, a meditation on what it is to be a father that has been interesting as a new father and as a person who likes to live a semi-artistic lifestyle and, you know, has similar struggles to him. I've related to it in a lot of ways. And also, it's still aspirational. It's still, he lives in Topeka Canyon. He rides motorcycles down the Baja Peninsula. You know, it's still kind of this nomadic sort of dream of what life could be. It's a good channel is the the long and short of it. The channel is called The Spirited Man. And they're kind of like little... Man. They're more video essays than pure vlogs. There's like a little more structure to them than that. But but great. Well, awesome. I'll check it out. Kaplan, what you got? I just heard an interesting thing yesterday that I can't believe I didn't realize. But did you know that Star Wars is about the Vietnam War? Um, Is it? Yeah. Well, I saw some people talking about it on Twitter. Someone was like, it's Star Wars. It's supposed to be for everyone. Why are you getting political? And then the official Star Wars Twitter account, which I think it's weird that that even exists, tweeted back and said the existence of like LGBTQ characters is in itself is not political. One. And number two, Star Wars is political. Like the word wars is literally in the title. Someone else responded and was like, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> like, I understand <laughs> one, but what's number two? And they said, oh, well, it's inspired by like what was happening in Vietnam. Yeah. I mean, I guess and- I had always agreed with all of those sentiments, but thought it was a little bit more World War II. Yeah, I mean, it's, look, it's about colonialism and rebellion, obviously. So, like, so people posted pictures of colonialism, of like all the kind of Nazi, like... Yeah, they're um, called stormtroopers. Yeah, the stormtroopers. That's what everyone was saying. And then somebody else posted an interview with James Cameron and George Lucas. And George Lucas talking about Vietnam and James Cameron just flat out saying like, so is this kind of based on what was happening in Vietnam? And he's like, yes, it's like, that's where... It all like came from is like, I mean, he talked about how in colonial times, the Revolutionary War, like the Americans were fighting against the Brits and it's like the rebellion versus the empire. But Mm -hmm. that by the 70s, the America had become the empire, the evil empire, you know, in Vietnam, those were the rebels fighting against the empire. He just thought it was fascinating how these empires form. And, you know, that's like ultimately there's a connection between the rebels and the empire and Star Wars, obviously. I guess I, I never knew that. and. I thought it was cool. I feel like everyone knows that Luke Skywalker is named Luke because like George Lucas and, mm-hmm. you know, George Lucas had issues with his father, like probably everyone does. And that there is a, a lot of like personal story in there. And obviously there's a lot of politics and like big things, but I never realized it was like 
directly came from his thoughts on Vietnam. So I feel like there's a quote from James Cameron circulating about how in Terminator 2, it's very explicit why the oppressive, murderous machine is a cop. Like none of that is accidental either. My point being, it always drives me nuts when people pretend that movies aren't about bigger things than they are. And like even the most obvious popcorn films also have some pretty overt political ideology behind them. I mean, and it is amazing that those stories and movies can still appeal to like everyone, whether they agree with you or not. And I do think that's like a power of storytelling and filmmaking. My dream is to like change someone's mind about something or to open someone's eyes about a different point of view through film. You could follow us across all social media at Just Shoot a Pod. If you have any thoughts or questions or if you have some comments, tweet at us at Just Shoot a Pod. Maybe some of your cool Dolly experimentations or ideas on how to use Dolly would be really fun. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's how we get cool people like Dennis on the show. And if you go to JustShootAPod.com, you'll check out our show notes. Eventually, I will update all of that stuff. Apologies that it's been so slow. You can follow me across all social media at Mr. Matt Enlo. And I'm on Twitter at SmiteyPileg. I'm on Instagram at OKaplan. This episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. Check him out at Noah Bayshore on Instagram. And the music you're listening to is from the Fee Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And we will catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.